we get so many questions on flex plans. Um, can you quote a flex plan? What do you think of moving to a flex plan from a traditional plan? And I really don't like it. <laughs> the reason why I don't like it is because it really has become, I think, a really popular new tool for advisors to use to dislodge business and maybe pick up the ear of prospects that they might not have heard from before. But I think it's just important to know what you're getting into with a flex plan if you are either promoting it or your customers asking you to move to a flex plan. Um, one of the reasons why I don't like flex plans is because unless the group has a certain volume, it is by definition anti-selection. And by volume, I think up to a thousand lives, I would never suggest a flex plan unless you have extremely strict rules around when you can move between the different classes. Um, so maybe I should back up and explain, first of all, what is a flex plan? Or we've also heard terms like cafeteria style plans. Um, a cafeteria style plan is just simply if you give your employees, you know, the typical is here's a bronze, silver, gold plan. Bronze plan is 50 bucks a month for 80% coverage. Gold plan is 70 bucks a month for 90% coverage. Um, and then, you know, let's say there are different versions of what I've just described, but it's effectively um, letting your employees pick and choose which level of coverage makes sense for them and then therefore also charging them premiums that make sense. So really what you're, what what happens is the plan sponsor almost becomes the insurance company because now the plan sponsor has to set rules. They have to care about risk. They have to worry about anti-selection. And if you remember in one of the earlier episodes, we described anti-selection as the practice of healthy people not buying health insurance when they're healthy and then sick people thinking, well, now that I'm ill, I need to buy health insurance. That's, I mean, doesn't matter <laughs> how evolved we've become as a species, that fundamental driver of human behavior always exists. And so therefore, if you just provide a benefit plan that is flex or cafeteria to a group that A, doesn't have the stomach to say no to people when people want to make changes mid-year, or B, doesn't have a dedicated, I would say, HR or serious plan administrator to, to spend the time it takes educating employees and doing the benefits administration, it can be more pain than it's worth. And I say that because typically, um, if insurers are willing to do flex plans, what they might do is say, well, you can't change between classes. So the bronze to silver or silver to gold or gold down back to bronze. You can't do that. Um, except during an annual enrollment period or a biannual period. So it might be every year, it might be every two years. So in the US, I mean, we can definitely see why in the US this is different, but I think in Canada, when we have a minimum floor of what the government will pay for, and we're really just covering things like dental, um, drugs, paramedical coverages, you have to be really, really, really careful because in the plan design, you don't want to inadvertently create more anti-selection. I say that because I don't think, you know, there's ever a time where people might use less massage than they're given, um, given the population. And I don't think there's also a time whereby, you know, if you're providing way more drug coverage than the person who actually needs to use themselves, people are not going to go out and just buy prescription drugs at the pharmacy unless they truly have a need. So you have to balance, you know, are you providing a disproportionate amount of like the want-based benefits in with the need-based benefits in your higher plans and therefore creating a circumstance whereby people want to reach for better physio coverage or better orthodontic coverage. Um, so, you know, the classic example, and we've seen this all the time because we have administered plans 
for 30 years. And what happens if you don't have strict rules and good education around these rules is come January 1, during the open enrollment period, let's say Susie decides to join the gold plan because her kids are coming up on needing braces and the gold plan has orthodontic coverage. So she spends $200 a month for her family plan that has orthodontic coverage. Then in November of that year, the kids are all now done their braces um, and now it's time to opt out. So she goes to HR and says, can I go back to the bronze plan? I don't want to pay 200 bucks a month. I want to pay $50 a month. And so HR then has to say, no, you're not allowed to move. You've got to wait. But I find companies are notorious for wanting to make exceptions. And we do this too. I get it. You have certain people that work for you that are very special. You have somebody who's in a class, but they really shouldn't be in that class. And so people are going to try to break the rules. And when they do that, so when we bend the rules, um, it just sets a precedent for Susie talking to her friends and saying, well, I was able to do this. Are you able to do this? Um, employees do talk. And I think it's, you know, it's fine. They're entitled to share information that's not private about how their employer treated them. But if this kind of behavior is not um, monitored or tracked, it, you know, over time, it just pushes up the cost of a plan. So as you know, the more anti-selection exists in a plan, the more claims exist, therefore premiums go up. And so I think when I'm seeing a lot of small and medium type plan sponsors saying, well, I really want this flex plan. And I think what they don't realize is that those plans are typically for enterprise markets, you know, large Fortune 500 companies that have thousands and thousands of employees on their plan. Sure, you can do that because statistically that population can support a, um, you know, full-time dedicated benefits administrators that work for the company, just making these class changes and doing the education and the rollout. But then B, also, if you do have a little bit of anti-selection, because the population numbers are large enough, it's not going to completely break the bank. So you do have a plan sponsor involved in there. But, you know, so often we hear 10, 20, 30 life groups saying, uh, we, my employees don't like the plan because it's not flexible. They can't pick and choose what they want. This person came from this other company and they could pick and choose. And so unfortunately, the answer to that 10 life employee is like, unfortunately, if you let people pick and choose, your costs are going to go bonkers. It's just not sustainable. So I think you've got to be able to have that conversation. And, you know, what I always suggest when people say, well, I really want the flexibility is I like to actually bring it back and just understand, first of all, where are your complaints about your benefit plan coming from? Because the one universal truth I've learned over the years is that people always complain about their benefits. It doesn't matter how good they are. It doesn't matter how rich they are. I've seen unlimited benefit plans at investment banks and their employees complain. They say, oh, my $10,000 health spending account, which by the way is over and above their 100% unlimited drug coverage, unlimited paramedical coverage, 100% dental coverage with no limits. So the additional $10,000 health spending account doesn't cover uh, Botox for cosmetic purposes, or it doesn't cover this like homeopathic herb that my homeopath wants to prescribe for me. Like I, we have literally heard these questions. And so that's why we always like to say, yes, it's good to hear from employees on the feedback they have for benefit plans, but you can't let that drive your budget because it's really like payroll. Um, if you ask any employee, Hey, what do you think of your salary today? Virtually everybody's going to say, I think I'm underpaid and I'm overworked. But that doesn't prevent companies from saying, this is the budget that we have, this is what we can pay, and this is what we're going to pay. Full stop. And so there's an annual negotiation period. Great. Maybe they don't negotiate. Fine.
But you have to think of benefits that way. Um, because once you understand that claims absolutely drive premiums and it's not a magical box of insurance, um, some of the earlier episodes you would be have, have heard that, um, you know, that really breaks the egg and you've got to break those myths early on. Um, otherwise, you know, plan sponsors will listen to others who say, you know, flex plan is a really great idea. So I think if a smaller medium business is looking for some flexibility, what I'd like to do is say, okay, so we've, we've listened to the feedback. That doesn't mean that we're going to change our budget necessarily, but what we can do within that budget is take a look at where you're spending your dollars and take a look if that meets the same philosophy and corporate culture that you have. You can also have hybrid plans. So you could have potentially one class whereby you have everybody in the same benefit plan or maybe two classes, maybe all employees and then the executive plan, but you provide a really fair basic plan and then you provide an additional health spending account that's based on the occupation class. And so that's where you're able to titrate the difference between the want-based benefits versus the need-based benefits. I think as an employee, uh, sorry, an employer, you need to do some soul searching for what is the minimum floor that you want to provide your team where you can sleep peacefully at night. And I think when I look at that, to me, it means you want to give as much money as possible in your drug benefit. If you can get to 90%, great. Um, we'll talk about drug caps another time, but I think 90% coverage up to $10,000 is a really fair plan for a smaller, medium-sized business. If you can get closer to 100%, that's always better because you know, that's the silent majority. People need the plan mostly for prescription drugs. They need it to pay for anti-anxiety medications. They need it for diabetes. They need it for cancer drugs. But those people are not going to come and complain necessarily that they um, they had to pay 10% because they're happy that you know, maybe $5,000 of their diabetic medication was covered. They're not going to rock the boat, okay? Um, then dental, you definitely want to provide as much dental as you can afford. If you can get up to 90% dental, great. I find 80% tends to start to disadvantage people from doing preventative cleaning type work. So the more dollars you can provide on the copay, the better. Um, I think $1,000 or $1,500 for dental is really fair. If you can go up more than that, great. But I think that's generally going to take care of most of the preventative needs of Canadians and their families. Then that's when we hear from people complaining about the vision and the massage benefits or so I don't call them necessarily the want based benefits because I, you know, I use both of those myself. I need glasses, I need contacts. I do go for physio or for the odd massage, but I think it's, there's a difference between that and the daily life sustaining medication that you pay for on the drug plan or the fact that if you don't take care of your teeth, you're going to have serious pain. You could have gum disease. You could have nerve damage. Like those are all really real. If I don't go for a massage, you know, it's my life is not necessarily at risk the way it would be if I missed a day of my antidepressant when, you know, suicidal thoughts are a real thing, especially in this time time that we're living in. So that's why, you know, if you wanted to put vision or put money behind paramedical, um, do that in a health spending account. So you can have a hybrid plan with a good core plan plus a health spending account where you put all others in there. And that way you're able to provide the flexibility in the choice without having to break the bank going for a flex plan. Um, so while we're talking about plan design structures, I also wanted to really encourage you to think simply about plan design. I say that because over time we see some um, companies that are small grow up. Maybe they start at 30 lives and they become 150 lives. Maybe they've purchased a couple companies and now they have subsidiaries. 
And so sometimes we see the plan structure evolve from a really, really easy peasy, plain vanilla, like class A, all employees, one division, one class, so easy, all good. And then sometimes it deviates over time into like 14 different classes. So you've got like union under one year, union over one year, um, you know, lead hands hired after 2017 or hired before 2017, people in their first three years of service versus their last 10 years of service executives. And then of course, the uh, notorious grandfathered classes where you have a class for one single person because maybe they were just so important and they complained enough that they were able to get grandfathered in at a certain plan. It's a closed class, no one can ever join it, but this person is in their own class. And you know, we've seen this happen where you have like, you go from 30 employees in one class to 300 employees, 15 classes and seven divisions. And that's when both you and your customer are going to start to get confused. Once you start crossing your eyes at these things, people start to scratch their head and they start to have, well, <laughs> episodes of insomnia, like, um, sorry, amnesia. Did anybody remember why we set it up this way? Who set it up this way? How do I administer that? So I think it's really important as the advisor to take leadership here and to say, okay, this is not a situation whereby if I see something that's odd, I'm not going to say anything about it. I'm going to say, hey, this seems odd and this is very different from what we usually have. Is there a reason that it's set up this way? And if your customer is able to provide that reason, great. But I find oftentimes they're not able to provide the reason. Maybe they've been hired recently and they just inherited this plan from their predecessor. This could be two or three predecessors ago where you have this really complex plan design. So we, I've actually personally gone in with advisors and actually made the case to simplify the plan design and the structure from a rate perspective, from a class and benefits perspective, because you also can create an inadvertent anti-selection if things are too complex. Imagine that you now hear that a subsidiary the company just bought that has a better benefit plan than you. I mean, that's odd. So I'm coming from the parent company, the one that bought that company, but they have a better plan than me. Do, maybe I want to apply to HR to transfer to that other company because they've got long-term disability and I don't. So it's so important to equalize and normalize that because as people learn these little things, and they will, because you have to assume that all information is public, they could potentially want to jump from one class to another. And all of that creates not just more work for your customer, more work um, at renewal, but also more complexity and more anti-selection, which down the road will lead to higher premiums. So it's good to stand up and say, I see something interesting, let's change it, let's simplify it. And I find customers are willing to listen. They're willing to listen to your guidance and expertise. Um, recently, we took a group that had a five class flex plan and we minimized it to only two classes and there was no more flex. It was just one universal uh, payroll deduction, one rate. And that was important because now we see people jumping in between classes because of occupation reasons and promotion reasons. And now HR doesn't have the extra headache of having to worry, oh, their deductions are different or their benefits are going to be different. And that's part of it. Um, so take the leadership, take the initiative. You can push back when things don't make sense. And my name is Yafis Akeja. I'm the CEO of Beneplan. You can find us at beneplan.ca. You can also send me an email directly at yafa at beneplan.ca. And you can follow us on LinkedIn um, or any social media outlet. Thanks for listening.